glass of wine okay. right now, so I don't. So you don't hear that thunk sound. <laughs> Although you might anyway. Okay. And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Cood Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strahan and Gary K. Wolf with very, very special guest Jane Yolen on the Cood Street Podcast! And Jane, just, as, just so you know, Jane, that is the way Jonathan introduces us. That's not, isn't that exciting? No. I feel, I feel like Barnum and Bailey Circus here. Okay, good. We're on the right page then. Oh, no. Uh, it amazes me that Jane Yolen has never been on the podcast before, and we've had uh, plenty of reason to do this. And now we've got two good reasons, which I want to talk about. Uh, one is uh, The Emerald Circus, a collection of short stories, your first collection of short stories in something like 18 years, isn't it? No, no, I think it's more, I think it's more like 10. Okay. I was, I was thinking of Sister Emily's Lightship. There was there was a small one done by uh, by um, um, the Boston Science Fiction Convention. Mm. Yeah, once upon so, a time she said small, small in that it had less um, push than Tor <laughs> had to get to get the, the stories out there. And also, uh, which is one of the things I always tell my students not to say: don't ever say "and also." Uh, nevertheless, also you. Uh, you have a new novel concerned with the Holocaust coming out, Mapping the Bones, which, as I mentioned in, in the email, I've not seen a copy of yet. Uh, it's something I told them. I told them to send it to you. Oh, th- they'll get around to it sometime about a week before my deadline is due, I'm sure. Um, but it, my first question, which is one that uh, seems to be an obvious one, going all the way back uh, to The Devil's Arithmetic, and then Briar Rose, which, as you know, I taught in classes for years. And then with short stories like Granny Rumpel and, and, and Sister Death, I know how hard it is for you to write about the Holocaust and how much it takes out of you, and yet you keep coming back to it. Well, actually, Gary, I have to tell you that after this one, which took me four and a half years to write, uh-huh. which means I was four and a half years in hell, um, I told my kids, if I ever say that I'm going to write another Holocaust novel, shoot me where I stand. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going to do short short novels, and I'm going to do happy novels. <laughs> or semi-happy novels. Um, but but I think that, that I have done what I had to say um, with the three novels. And, I, you know, as I was, I was looking at it, somebody asked me, I guess uh, somebody at... Um, was uh, sent me questions about about this book, Mapping the Bones, and said, um, uh, what is the connection between the three novels? And so in order to write that back to them, I said, I think that all three of them are about memory, but in different ways. Um, clearly, Devil's Arithmetic is about a child going back in time because she refuses to remember. She doesn't want to think right. about history. Right. Um, and so she's forced into re- remembering through uh, this almost magical sending it back to a time when her grandparents were were in um, uh, uh, right in, in a concentration camp. Um, the second book, which you know really well, Briar Rose, um, is memory in a slightly different way um, because. 
uh, our girl, our, 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 our Becca, finds finds out um, about her grandmother through the memories of a man who had been there, who had been part of the the partisan movement and and right. etc. Um, and this book takes us the memories. There are two. There are two characters telling the story. Um, mm-hmm. They're twins, and they're Hansel and Gretel, actually. So they're Hyman, yeah. Hyman Gittel, um, and he's a poet um, and a stutterer. So he mostly, when he tells, when he when he does his poems, he he doesn't stutter when he tells them out loud. But otherwise, he and his sister have developed a, a hand sign language of their own. Um, as twins which, do. As twins do. Um, and so it follows the armature of Hansel and Gretel, but it doesn't otherwise really reference Hansel and Gretel. You just have three, the three sections of the Hansel and Gretel tale is part mm-hmm. of it. So, so, you know, as Briar Rose doesn't actually follow exactly what happens in Sleeping Beauty, but it, it's on that armature. Uh, Hansel and Gretel is the same thing. Yeah. And that, 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 that's something that fascinates me in general about, and this is true of some of the stories in the Emerald Circus, that this idea of, of repurposing fairy tales for contemporary purposes, because in, in between there we had uh, uh, your Rumpelstiltskin story, which, uh, which I've also taught to students, and uh, even my Jewish students never thought that possibly the original Rumpelstiltskin sort of sounds anti-Semitic when you look at it from that angle. Yeah. Well, you know, when I discovered that, and you know, because I was I was working on on um, getting ready to teach. I was teaching um, a children's literature course at Smith, and I was getting ready to teach um, the 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 portion on fairy tales. And I had chosen my my three fairy tales to talk about that were fairy tales in which I think people. Get them the wrong way. That we have, we, we think of them as happy ever after the wrong way. And Rumpelstiltskin yeah. was one of those. And as I started to prepare it for the classroom, that's when I thought for the first time that, wait a minute, when you're looking at Rumpelstiltskin, in that story, the only one who is honest and does what he says he can do is Rumpelstiltskin himself. Right. And so why is he punished? And then you step back and you say, all right, why is he punished? Well, how is he punished? He has to live outside the community. He only has one job he can do, spinning straw into gold. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the end, he's the one who is destroyed because of this canard that he is going to try to steal the queen's wife, uh, the queen's uh, baby. And then I thought... Oh my God! That's what they used to say about the Jews. They they stole the you know around Easter time. They right. stole the babies. It's the book called the Blood Libel, and it all fell into place at that point. And, and, and you said, and, and they also had odd names that were hard to pronounce, which had, goes back to the very title of the story. Yeah, yeah. So so it it was one of those sort of almost sort of fortuitous things. And then I wrote an article about it. Um, mm-hmm. 
which you know as well. And and um, I cannot remember when I actually wrote Rumpelstiltskin and when I wrote the, the article, whether they were close together or whether they were far apart. But the, the two things support one another. And every time I talk about fairy tales and I mention that, there's always a gasp in the audience because they go, I never thought of it that way. But it makes perfect sense. Well, and as, as you know, as a scholar of fairy tales, most of the modern editions of, of the Grimm Brothers collection omit some of the more blatantly anti-Semitic tales that were in the original editions. Oh, right. Right, the Jew among the thorns being one of them. Right. Yeah. But one of the other things that shows up in the Emerald Circus is you're, you, the, the, I, I, I'm fascinated by the, this idea of repurposing fairy tales. And uh, well, Briar Rose was part of a whole series that Terry Windling was editing, doing exactly that. It was a very good series while it lasted. Um, and I noticed one of the blurbs on um, Mapping the Bones is from Gregory Maguire, who's made a career of sort of repurposing or rethinking uh, not just fairy tales, but children's books. And you, and you do the same thing. I mean, you did the same thing with um, one of your, one of my favorite stories of yours, which is a takeoff on Peter Pan called Lost Girls. And that's, uh, I'm curious as to what kind of response you get from audiences when you talk about that or read that one. Um. Most of the women seem to love it. And my friend Bruce Google, who, who I adore and who normally likes everything to me, he said, you've killed off my culture hero. And he was furious <laughs> with me. And I said, Bruce, think about it. He's very old and he's going around kissing very young girls and making slaves of them. Is it a creepy story? <laughs> I, I almost hesitate to say this. But I remember reading Lost Girls. It came out many years ago, um, and I don't—I must have read it then. And I'm reading it now. In the age of Trump, it's a different story and scarier than it was then. Well, not only Trump, but Mr. Uh, you know, Mr. Moore. Yeah. 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 Weinstein and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, yep. I'm curious, what is it that, that draws you to reimagining and repurposing these, you know, fairy tales and works of children's literature? What is it that seems so uh, useful, I guess, as a storyteller to um, use as a lens to tell your own stories through? Well, that's, that's um, for me, the stories that I read in my childhood, and I was a huge fairy tale reader, and my first, my first important story or series of stories that I read as a child were the Arthurian stories. I consider myself an Arthurholic, actually. <laughs> but um, they are still so strong in my imagination that I find myself going back again and again. Um, sometimes I've taken some of these short stories and turned them into novels because I can't let it go. And mm-hmm. um, in fact, this is going to amuse you. The, the Tachyon guys, I call them, uh, the the the, the uh, publisher and, uh, and and his and his wonderful people who produce the Emerald Circus. The next Jacob book we're, yeah. it's, we're working on now is called Fractured, mm-hmm. and these fractured fairy tales. So they are stories of mine 
that um, are really taking taking the fairy tales, not the Oz, not the mm. the Arthurian, not the the you know the written story yeah. so much as the old fairy tales had really um, pummeling them. Uh, many of them you may have read before of mine, but putting them all together in one book um, in the same kind of format as this one with, with notes at the end and maybe some, mm-hmm. some fairy tale poetry as well. But this is not going to include your some of the takeoffs on, for example, O. Henry, uh, we talked about J.M. Barry, and, and it's clear you make a distinction in your own mind between actual fairy tales and what is the term literary fairy tales still a valid term? Written fairy tales. You know what I mean. Hans Christian Andersen, well, Elfram, that's, why that's why Andersen is in this book and is not going to be in the other book. This is, these are fractured fairy tales that are fairy tales really from the, the folk culture. You know where the fractured fairy tales comes from, don't you? No. Rocky and Bullwinkle. One of the features (laughs) the old Rocky and Bullwinkle show was a series of fractured fairy tales narrated by Edward Everett Horton, who had the great voice for it. And I don't remember any of them right now, but they were very, very funny when I was a kid and watched that show. (laughs) Yeah, I never watched it, so... (laughs) you know yeah trying to think what I, I watched on early television but i'm i'm a little bit older than you so um i was of the um of the uh video ranger and uh um that that era not the the bullwinkle era are we actually going to get into the contest to who's older? Come on, Jane, you're not that Larry. <laughs> We're not going to do that. <laughs> Gary. Gary. All right. I'm going to be 79 next month. Okay, that's way older than I am. I'm One of the other things which is fascinating about your career, obviously, your careers, I should say, because one of the things I learned in talking to my kids and grandkids and and, and their friends is that you've got lots of people who know you through dinosaurs, uh, how do dinosaurs say goodnight. You've got the young adult people who might have, the population who might have realized that you'd actually written novels about a wizard school long before... um, J.K. Rowling came along. There's a science fiction community which you've always been folded into, um, even though you've written a limited amount of science fiction. And then now you've got this whole uh, group of followers of young adult or not young adult fiction uh, who are familiar with your historical and, um, and in, in the case of the new novel, the Holocaust thing. Do you see these as separate readerships, or is there one giant Jane Yolen readership out there? Oh, I hope there's one giant Jane readership out there, but I do. I mean, I, I get uh, teachers running up and saying, I love your book. And I know at that point they mean Owl Moon. Or uh, letters, yeah. letters. Or, or if I'm at a book festival, all the little boys are buzzing around the latest um, of the dinosaur books. Or if, right. I, or, or if I'm at Y'all Fest down in South Carolina, 
there are all the teenagers who know my teenage books. Um, and then I go to a science fiction convention and I have people, you know, fangirling me over things like, um, or fanboying me over things like, um, Sister Light, Sister Dark, or that sort of thing. Yeah, there are separate categories, but I have, you know, this year, I think I told you, this year, my 365th and 366th books are coming out. Wow. So you will be able to read a Jane Yolen book a day for a year, even if it's a leap year. <laughs> <laughs> by the end of the year, because I have 11 books coming out this year, by the end of the year, it'll be over 370. That's astonishing. Wow. Have you? I mean, have you? Have you? Have you, have you keep track of this? I mean, there are there are story. There are people like Simon, for example, who wrote hundreds and hundreds of novels. Or John, do, do you have any idea what the record is? I I heard that there was a woman in Spain who writes a lot of those um, small um, romantic uh, um, little little books for you know. Um, they may be uh, they may be illustrated. I forget what the title is. But, and she has written something like a thousand, fifteen hundred of of them. Um, who knows how many Barbara Cartland wrote? What what, yeah. what I have done is probably written the largest variety. I mean, I've done. I have three cookbooks out. I have twelve music books out. I have books of poems, um, maybe 30 or 40 books of poems. I have over 60 novels out, both for children and adults. Um, I've done graphic novels. I've done five graphic novels, I think it is. Um, I, my first novel in verse is coming out this year. So I'm always looking for new things to do because I have a very low threshold of boredom. <laughs> well, actually, I was going to ask, I mean, what drives you to be so productive? What keeps you focused and driven? My head doesn't stop working, and I have to get stuff out of my head. Um, I write a poem a day for 980 subscribers. Um, those are kind of finger exercises, but mm -hmm. I sell them, sell a lot of the poems to magazines and journals and quarterlies and that sort of thing. Um, and I, 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 I never, I never say no. If somebody says, can you do such and such? I say, uh, yes, I can. Even if maybe a week later I decide I can't do it. I always start with the idea that yes, I can. Um, if you, if you say no, you've shut the door. And you, it may have been the most interesting project you've ever done. So I, I, I need to take a little while to think about it. You must get tons of invitations to write things. Uh, you can't possibly keep, keep up with all of them, can you? Well, Jonathan, how many times have I written a short story for you? A couple, actually, believe it or not, only once. Really only one? Only I've one said, time, yeah. That, so I've three or four times said no. Yeah. And that the, the no has two parts to it. One, I couldn't think of something. Yep. And two, I didn't have the time. Which is perfectly understandable. You know, yeah, I mean, but you, you need to have something that fits and that makes sense. But yes, um, the Hans Christian Andersen story you wrote for me. 
Right. That was that was oh. the under the hat. Yeah. Was yeah, yeah. But you'd asked me several times. Oh yeah, and I always. I'd like to try. Yes. If it's in my wheelhouse. There yeah. are some people who ask me things that are just entirely out of my wheelhouse. Um, and so those I will say, I'm not sure that that's something I could do successfully. But if it even touches somewhere near what, you know, and I, I do, I sit down and I try to think of ideas. Um, and if something doesn't come, then, you know, um, I'm left with, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be able to do it. Well, it's, it's interesting you say that because one of the most interesting things to me is to look at some, you know, a writer and look at the kind of work they do and come up with something that seems tangential to it, but which they can bring something of their own to in a really kind of unique and valuable way that will completely reinterpret what you're trying to do. And I would have yeah. thought that kind of thing is what would hopefully attract you, to be drawn in a different direction and be able to see how you could do that, whatever it might be. The way I've done that very often for anthology is, as I say, I can write you a poem, but I, I don't think I can write you a short story on that. And yeah. then I get a lot of people say, we're not doing poems. Um, and, and yet um, they've started saying, well, send us something. Um, I remember a woman was doing um, a um, an anthology called Such a Pretty Face, and it was a phology, uh, an anthology about fat issues. Mm-hmm. I said, "Well, I can, you know, I only have I only have the ability right now to write a poem for you." She had a very short thing. She said, "I yeah. don't want a poem," and I said, "Well, let me send you it, and you can always say no." So I sent her uh, a poem. Um, and she not only bought it, she put it in the front of the book. Um, uh-huh. Then Billy Collins picked it up um, for an anthology that he was doing of poetry for when he was when he was um, poet laureate of America. And and the next thing I know, I get people buying, you know, say, can we have the rights to put this in this book or this book or this book? So it's one of my most popular poems. So you know, so poetry is one way that I that I do that. Um, but another way is sometimes I, I I wait and I wait and I wait and I keep telling them, yes, I'm going to try, I'm going to try, and then I get the we only have three days till the uh, till the actual deadline. Can you get me something? And I would say, can you give me five days? And they say yes, and then I then I send them something, and it's usually off the wall, but they take. <laughs> Well, one, we should mention also that the Emerald Circus uh, is an unusual anthology in that it, it, it sort of has a poem to match every one of the stories in it. Uh, not not that it's parallel, but it's thematically parallel. Is that fair right. enough to say? Right, right. Um, that's that's fun to do that kind of matchup. And some of the poems I write, wrote specifically for for the thing, and some of them were poems that I had had published before. Uh, or had tried to get published before, and they found they found a home there. This is a quick digression, but you mentioned Billy Collins putting one of your poems into kind of a mainstream anthology. We on, on our podcast we've hardly ever talked about uh, science fiction or fantasy or folkloristic poetry. Although a lot of our friends write it, Joe Haldeman has written poetry his whole career, and but yet Rick, they're all Rick Le Guin was is a great poet. Le, Le Guin's written. 
but do you see that there's still a kind of divide between like mainstream poetry that shows up in the New Yorker or the Iowa Review and what we think of as genre poetry, or I should say poetry that comes from genre-associated writers? I think that what the diff- that what the difference is is that if it's a poem that is only using science fiction or fantasy tropes, uh-huh. uh, it, it sits pretty solidly in the science fiction thing. And a lot of that is verse, not, um, you know, fun verse. Um, Good point. Interesting. That's yeah. thing. But, but if you look at great poetry, it very often touches on, um, on uh, what we might call science fiction or fantastical elements, whether mm-hmm. it's the late Lady of Shalott, or if it's uh, the Graves of Fine and Quiet Place, but none, I think, do their embrace, is going, shifting right over into into fantasy land, almost. It's right on that, that edge. Um, poems used wild metaphors. Uh, if you If you look, just look at Shakespeare. All you have to do is look at Shakespeare's poems, and they're Wonderful wild metaphors. Um, e. Cummings. Um, yeah. Oh my God! Uh, you know uh, anything by Dylan Thomas or Yeats? Um, and 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 yet that's considered mainstream poetry. But you could take the Song of Wandering Angus by Yeats, and uh-huh. it fits solidly into fantasy poetry. And that. Uh- I suppose most of William Blake was there too. That turned into a beautiful girl, and he's following her till time tides her up. So, so I think that 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 we may have built ourselves in fantasy and science fiction a little ghetto, but a lot of those poems escape out of that ghetto and get published elsewhere. So when I'm sending poems out, I send them both to Asimov's and Goblin Fruit and. And that kind of um, uh, magazine, but I also send my poems to uh, places, um, you know, that are regular quarterlies or journals of, of literary. And, and I'm and I'm getting someplace. I'm I'm not going to be famous as a poet, I don't think. Uh, outside of outside of fantasy and science fiction, but I do get someplace. Well, and, and, and certainly, science fiction and fantasy writers. Obviously, read poetry. When you were talking about the Song of Wandering Angus, the last line of the last two lines of that is, our, if I'm recalling the right poem, are uh, the silver apples, yeah. apples of the moon, the golden the apples of the sun. Which, yeah. And Bradbury just took that for one of his best book titles, as far as I can. Throw down. I'm actually kind of curious. And the, the, the other side of that surely has to be: How do you feel? that science fiction has accepted and integrated poetry into what it does. I mean, there are awards like the Riesling Awards or whatever else, but it often seems a little bit on the sideline of things. Well, it, you know, some, some people use it more than, more than others. Um, some people use it for spells. Uh, some people use um, poetry for sort of interstitial moments in chapters, um, some of them I put songs into 
the Sister Light books. Um, I have um, the, the boy in Mapping the Bones writes poetry. It's Holocaust poetry, but it's poetry. Um, and there it is, interlined with within the body of the book. Um, so I did an Arthurian novel that had each chapter, uh, not each chapter, each section. Originally I had each chapter. Each section begins with a poem reimagining each time the sword in the stone. Mm-hmm. So I think I think there's more of that than 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 you may realize, but it's more in fantasy, not in science fiction. Yeah. Science fiction, there have been some, um, but they tend again to be verse rather than than what we would call um, actual um, literary poems. I think it maybe it's just a different way using the imagination because to, to get a full science fiction trope meaningfully into a poem uh, you couldn't do that in a lyric it, I, I remember talking to um, a, a, actually I was talking to Karen Tidbeck a Swedish writer the only Nobel Prize winning poet to have written a science fiction poem was Harry Martinson a Swedish writer who wrote Aniara which was later turned into an opera but it's a book length poem it's a book length narrative poem and that may be what it takes to actually get science fiction into poetry. Well, except we had it before. We had the Odyssey. We had the Iliad. <laughs> well, oh, that's there, there, there's that. But if um, you go back, if you go back to to the great um, um, the, the the great poets of of that were mostly oral poets, um, yeah. yeah, you're going to have that. But you're not going to have it. Uh, it's hard. How many, I mean, how many full-length um, story poems have been made into uh, a book? This yeah. new thing in, in young adult books called verse novels um, are very often just prose broken up into small fragments of each sentence broken up into small fragments. But the book that I have coming out, Finding Baba Yaga, which is coming out um, from Tor, uh, uh, Tor.com, is um, a real poems. Each is an individual poem that brings, moves the story forward, but they can also be read as individual poems. Uh, it was interesting that uh, another collection from, from Tachyon recently is Joe Walton's collection, Starlings. And yep. in that, she talks about some of her short stories are basically things she wrote as poems with the line breaks removed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, She's a wonderful poet. And she is a very good poet, absolutely. One thing I'm sort of curious about, which might seem odd, but based on conversations I've had with other friends of mine who do this, do you see a connection between how you write poetry and how you write for picture books? Yes, very much. Very close. Um, Poems, really, for the most part, are meant to be read aloud, and so are picture books. And when I'm writing either one of them, as I'm writing, I'm reading it out loud uh, because um, the sound of it, the sonority, I don't know if that's actually a word, but um, that that the, the books have to read as well aloud, the, the picture books have to read as well aloud as they do on the page. Mm. And the same thing with poems. 
I think the best poems um, can be declared. I think I, I often tell my when I teach writing the picture book, I say to them, you know, read them out loud. If it helps, write it down as if it were a poem. Then you will see where all the extraneous words are. And you'll see from the line breaks where you need something more. Um, Sometimes somebody writing a picture book doesn't see that they're repeating over and over again where it doesn't need to be repeated or they're not repeating where it should be repeated. But if you see it down, written down as if it were a poem with line breaks like a poem, suddenly you see what's extraneous and what isn't, what's necessarily and has been left out. So when you have the the poem for the picture book then, what's the process for you leading forward then to the book? Do you hand that off to a collaborator and they take it from there, or do you then continue working on a combination of your prose and their imagery, or, or, or what tends to happen? Uh, what tends to happen is you sell the manuscript and the publisher finds <laughs> the illustration. Uh, I have been in the business long enough, and I have enough friends who are really fine illustrators that I can suggest. Sometimes I can even go and say, so-and-so wants to do this book. doesn't mean they get to do it, no. but you know. But they may make a couple of pictures. It may be a new illustrator I found, and they make a couple of pictures, and I go, ooh, ooh, yes, please. I have one of those coming out um, this year. Yeah. Um, at the end of the year. Um, it's a picture book called Crow Not Crow, and it's a it's a book from Cornell Lab of Ornithology, and it's a bird book, of course. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, uh, I wrote it with my son Adam, and I knew this uh, woman. Met her. I met her actually in Scotland, where she's living right now, but she's in America, um, getting her doctorate in uh, Scotland. And I love her work. And so I sent some of her work along uh, to the editor who fell in love with her work as well. And so she was the one who ended up doing the book. At the same time, you've worked with some of the uh, – this, this is always something that fascinates me when you, we deal with picture books and genre books. You've worked with some of the great science fiction and fantasy illustrators. I mean, Al Moon, which is very famous, is John Schoner, who is – Probably. Own, I think it's his only picture book, or maybe it was his certainly his first picture book. He really? had done, yeah, he had done black and white illustrations for two children's books much earlier in his career. One was Gentle Ben, and the other one was Rascal, which is about a raccoon. But then he turned to science fiction, and everybody knows him from Dune at this point. That's right. That's right. You worked with Leo and Diane Dillon, who are just iconic figures. I mean, the paperbacks of my childhood all have Leo and Diane Dillon covers on them. Well, I never actually did a book with them. Um, you didn't? But they were supposed to do a book of mine, and it fell through. Hmm. Um, but I am a huge fan of theirs, and I have loved their work forever. Oh. And, of course, now it's just Diane, unfortunately. Mm, of course, yeah. 
do you find yourself continually drawn back to the form? I mean, I, 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 the first time I really paid close attention to it as a form was when a friend of mine was doing one of his early picture books, and it was based on someone else's poem, and he was he's an artist, he was commissioned just to do it. But there seems to be something compelling about it as a form in and of itself that doesn't get talked about that much within the, you know, the field at large, it seems to me. Well, it certainly gets talked about in children's mm. books. It doesn't get necessarily recognized by um, by the science fiction fantasy novelist sort of thing. Um, but, you know, you cannot look at someone like Sean Tam. You know, you must know his work. because it's, Well, it's his, work was, it's his work I was referring to. Okay. Well, Sean's stuff is fantastical. It's, you know, Hieronymus Bashi in places. It's, um, it takes a picture book and it moves it up six levels. Um, and, and yet children can enjoy it as much as adults can enjoy it, can enjoy them. And, um, yeah, he's certainly talked about all the time. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but there's a huge range in picture books. You have, and, and certainly I've done as huge array. My How Do Dinosaurs Say Goodnight and the other How Do Dinosaur books are straight ahead perfect books for a certain age and they're repeatable. There are 12 big ones out but there are 25 or 28 in all sorts of ways. You know, there's a there's a scratch and sniff book, there's a, a sticker book, there's a chalk book that comes with chalk so you can learn your ABCs and write right right on the on the thing. So there are all kinds of things. Um, that's very different from Al Moon, which is my Caldecott winning book, which John Schoner did the pictures for, which is is um, almost a poem. It's, it's almost very a poem. But it's but Nobody mentions that it's a poem, but it is a poem. It's a long poem about a child and a father going out in the woods looking for owls at night in in the snow. Um, and I also have uh, a Holocaust picture book about a family in, um, uh, in Paris who escape once the Nazis come in, a Jewish family. Um I have picture a picture book about Chagall in poetry form. Cool. Um, so, I mean, I have lots. You you name it, and I've probably written. <laughs> well, you you have to forgive us because with 366 books, we can't read as fast as you can write. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you sat down this year, you could read them all. Well, that's true. We could. Well, one of the other things which is interesting is this crossover uh, because I. Uh, okay, I, I doubt if very many people reading How Does Dinosaurs Say Goodnight at this age are going to be reading, let's say, the great Alta books. But I know that uh, The Devil's Arithmetic, way back when, was actually written as a young adult novel and is kind of a classic young adult novel. It, it, it was, we should mention it was even filmed with... Um, Kirsten Dunst. Yes, Kirsten Dunst, when she was still a teenager, and not a bad film, actually. But then Briar Rose, a few years later, which is part of the Terry Windling series, that wasn't actually written as a young adult novel, was it? It was published as an adult novel, but it got so much play in high school and college that they have brought out, they haven't changed a word in it, but they have Uh brought out 
a volume that looks like it's it's a different format. So it looks like it's a young adult book. Uh-huh. And I'll tell you, um, Emerald Circus has, is out as um, an adult book, but it was reviewed in both as in both library journal and school library journal. They both did raves, and it was chosen by them for their year's best, both as an adult book and as a young adult book. So, yeah, that crossover exists. Yeah, and it's, uh, I mean, does it make any difference then? I mean, one of the things I've noticed in the last 20 years uh, is not only this has happened to um, Briar Rose, it's happened to things like The Catcher in the Rye, which is now on the young adult curriculum. It's things that we used to think of as adult books. Apparently, if they have teenagers in them, they're now young adult books. Well, think about how many adults were reading the Harry Potter books, mm. usually well, wrapping brown paper covers, so nobody knew that they were reading a children's book. And when the book started, they were young books. The kids were middle grade. And as the kids got older, because it was seven year, seven books over a seven-year period of schooling, so they ended up, by the time you were going to have them, really fighting the bad guys, they needed to be teenagers. Right. It was, it was the same thing watching the movies, because you got to watch these actors grow up in those movies. That's right. Um, but do you have any, do you have readers that follow you? Because you've written for literally every age group, from picture books uh, where, where there are minimal uh, words um, to adult novels. Let's say the great Alta things, maybe your sort of iconic uh, series of adult novels. I want to talk about those in a minute. Do you find people following you from their preschool days through adulthood? Well, there, I mean, I'm not sure I've ever met them. Hmm. You know, there are sometimes people will come, but I will meet them at different stages in their lives. And then I will hmm. have people come to me and say, when I was a little girl, my mother read me this and now I'm reading it to my children. And then I'm feeling, oh my God, I'm old. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, but. But um, so those are people who come up to me and they will say, I read your, your, your children's books when I was a child. I'm now reading them to my children. But I also like this book or that book. That's an older book. Um, yeah, I feel like I'm a full service agency. <laughs> cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, something that sort of spins off that a little bit would be, be a thing. You've been a professional writer for a very, very long time making you know, your, your livelihood at it. Uh, how Thanks. much... <laughs> how much of being able to do that is being willing to do everything? A lot. A lot. Um, I would say, of my books, if you wanted to look at the books that I really made really good money at, um, I could count them on two hands. Hmm. All right? Hmm. Um, Owl Moon, because it's, it's, it's still, it was published in 1987 and it still sells about 40,000 copies a year. Wow. In hardcover. In hardcover. I don't know how much it's selling in paperback. Um, because that's, that's in the scholastic. Sells it. Um, Devil's Arithmetic, because it's taught all the time. Mm. Uh, um, um, Several of the dinosaur books, 
really keep selling really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, those those are the ones. Fireworks get taught a lot too. But not as not quite as much as the others. So I have I would say I have about a hundred and maybe even two hundred books out of print. Yeah. But then I find other ways of bringing them sneakily back. <laughs> and and that's because we now have a range of abilities. Mm. They go into um, Kindle, so they may go into um, a different kind of paperback, or they may go into a particular school uh, uh, textbook, or that sort of thing. So there, there are many ways that I'll stay in print. And my kids now, for the first time ever, my daughter is using the word legacy. Mm. She's she's my um, she's my career executive, but she's also my PA, and she is working hard on making sure that these books with with the age with our agent that these books one after another will find another way of getting into print and for that I'm very I'm very grateful um, I also have about 30 unsold manuscripts and I told the kids <laughs> after I die um, you can go and say we just Every year, we just <laughs> manuscripts. We think this is the last. I know you've said this on Facebook before, Jane, but it's something that would astonish a lot of, especially young aspiring writers, to find that even with 366 books out, Jane Yolen still gets rejections. Oh, yes. And the poetry gets rejected practically every day. You know, I send them out, they get back, then this one takes two and but rejects three, and this one takes five and rejects eight. You know, I mean, it's one of those things where uh, if you if you got upset and kicked the table or, you know, the cat or something, every time you had something rejected, you will have no more cat, no more table, and no, <laughs> you'll have no more stuff either. You were talking about legacy for a moment there, and it made me think about something that I'd experienced in uh, my career as an anthologist, that every now and again you come across literary estates where that, you know, once the author has, has passed on, they become very protective of, of the legacy to the point where they become overly limiting about what can be reprinted and where it can be, can't be reprinted. How important it is, do, is it, do you think, to keep your own work, both well before legacy becomes an issue and afterwards, uh, current and available and out in the world so people are, know you, you sort of you still exist as a creative entity? Because I think some writers lose track of that. Well, you know, I think we're so busy writing, we're not thinking about what's going to happen after we're dead. Mm. Um, but my, my, all three of my kids are in the book business, mm. and... Um, I've written 20 or so books with each of them, and uh, they're very much aware of keeping things. And we all have the same agent. So I think that, you know, if the question gets to be not just keeping something alive, but how is it being used? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and 
if if somebody wants it in an anthology, probably that's just fine. If somebody wants to have it um, advertising sure. toilet bowls, uh, I'm you know we have to really think well, yeah. about that. Um, what about movies? You know all that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, but honestly, when I'm dead, I don't care. Well, no. <laughs> Well, I didn't have to worry about it then, and Adam has to. The, the, there's the other thing which, which I think is fascinating when you have as many books as you have, that a book that you may have written way back at the beginning of your career suddenly becomes relevant again in a new way. And I'm not just talking about things like The Devil's Arithmetic, if I'm not mistaken. One of your very first books was about pirate, women pirates. Yeah, my very first one. Very first one. Okay, I women pirates seem to be a thing now. Yeah, but I I rewrote that about ten years ago, uh-huh. maybe eight years ago, uh, because it was when I first wrote that book, Pirates and Petticoats, came uh-huh. out in sixty three. Sixty three. Wow. Um, it there was nothing, there was no other book about women pirates. You see, you had to find one here, one there, one somewhere else. But when when it came out, it was the first book. Which was only about women pirates, and it was for kids. Right. Fast forward forty-five, fifty years, and what you find is that there's a lot more information. Um, one woman wrote this fascinating book about, um, you know, out of out of the the, the uh, British Admiralty archives and the and the American archives and naval archives. About about uh, women who were thought to be or possibly or who were just made up stories, and some right. of the stories I found that I had found earlier turned out to be probably you know just uh, made up in, in newspapers of the day. So right. when I rewrote it as Sea Queens, I left them out, but I put in some of the newer ones. That I was finding from these archives. So yeah, it's 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 nice to to be able to grab stuff from back there, but you have to be careful. And some of my early books are so much of a of their their time that they would not fly now. They just wouldn't fly. So possibly you know dead books dead and gone. Um, but but they all helped me learn. They helped me learn my craft. I was sort of learning in public. Well, in 1963 was your first book. Yep. I was I was a kid then, Jane. I was just I was really small. I was so young. <laughs> That's not a nice thing to do, Gary. If I could just reach in there and take the escape the glass of wine and pour it all over you. <laughs> right now, everybody who listens to this is judging you, Gary, not anybody else. <laughs> hey, when, when I get to be close to Jane's age, I can say whatever I want. But you're not there yet. <laughs> I'm, I'm seriously in trouble, aren't I? Yeah. You are. You okay. Are. Well, I love you I anyway. Uh, Jane, uh, fine. <laughs> <laughs> One of the last things I want to say, because I think it's fascinating, uh, and I, I don't know where we are on time. We're getting towards the end of the hour. We've got a, few, a little while okay. before yet. All right. One of the things that I find fascinating uh, 
in the great Alta series, the Sister Light, Sister Dark, and uh, White Jenna, and so forth, is the scholarship. The fact that you had paid attention to the scholarship of these stories, and as far as I know, it may be the only series of novels that presents, you know, the legend, the uh, history, the uh, I forget all the different forms of storytelling that you use, but really that whole series of, of novels is a kind of wonderful case study in different ways of telling the same story um, that historically match uh, things, I suppose, going back to the uh, Arthurian legends, to uh, Mallory, to Chrétien de Troyes. Were you really writing a kind of academic critique in those novels? Because it looks like it to me. Some of that in there. Uh, I was, I was, I can't remember where I was, but my, my husband David was with me. He didn't come to many science fiction conventions, but he was at this one. And he, he was sitting in on a discussion. Um, I was on the panel and he was sitting, sitting in, in the audience, uh, listening and someone got up and made uh, a declaration about um, w- one section of, of those books is, is called the story. Was it the story? Yeah. The history, I think. Um, and they said, but that's the real story. And he, he stood up and he said, if you think any one of those sections is what really happened, you're missing the point <laughs> of the book. <laughs> because there are little bits and pieces. It, you're, you're in, you're in the blind man and the elephant territory here. There are little bits and pieces of that um, go to telling the story, but nobody's got the whole thing. And some of them are contradictory. Um, but it's just the way, you know, it, if you look if you look now at, um, at how we're reporting the, the Trump story, and mm-hmm. it depends who you're listening to, and who you you think is telling the truth. And if you ask a Trump supporter, you get a totally different story than if you ask um, someone of my persuasion who is pretty far to the left. Um, and it's interesting because we can sit and argue about it forever and cite our own sources and right. stem the other person's sources to, you know, to the wastebasket. Um and that's what I was trying to do there. And I've been, I've taught uh, college. Uh, my husband was a, an yeah. academic. And and I looked at, at exactly that. The, the Arthurian stuff was clearly in my mind um, because I have read so much of it when I started thinking about what is the history, what is the story, yeah. the balladry, um, what, what are the, the folkloric implications of this. Um, is there any truth to any of these stories? We are just seeing it in all different parts, and it depends what part of the elephant you put your hand on. Which I think is fascinating because, I mean, in one of the widely read, and I, I'm getting the sense more and more influential books about the writing and conceiving of fantasy is your own touch magic, which is, is that still in print? Vaguely. Vaguely. <laughs> oh. like bring it back? <laughs> okay, but, but 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 still, it's it, it, it's I, one of the things we see happening more and more in fantasy writers today are playing with those kinds of multiple layered narratives that you were talking about in Touch Magic and you were demonstrating in the Great Alta series. But you know what? 
Um, it seems to me that more and more people are referencing, you know, like Tolkien, rather than going back and reading the old, the old fairy tales um, or the old folklore. I mean, when I when I write that stuff, Catherine Briggs, and it's set anywhere in the British Isles, Catherine Briggs and her her, her books about about British folk folklore are my Bible. Um, if I'm going to retell a story that takes place in Russia, I need to go back and read some of the old Russian stories um, in the oldest versions I can. And I think that what's happening is that young writers are... Boy, I need a cane and I need to bash it on the table. You know, you, you young writers! Um, but... but there are some of them who are brilliant and they do wonderful, wonderful work. But it's, you know, it's the ones who go back and kind of rewrite Tolkien um, and think oh, they're yeah. doing no. But I mean, when you mention Russian folktales, I mean, one, okay, uh, I, I will offer a, a name. One of the younger writers who I think does her homework is Kat, Catherine Valenti, uh, who has used Russian folktales in her stories, who's done the research, reads a lot, and is a terrific writer. Yeah, a lot of a, a lot of the um, people, though, if they, for example, if they're going to do a Cinderella retelling, they read uh-huh. one one Cinderella story. They think they know it, and those stories go back to the Egyptians and the Chinese. Those right. are so it's it's if you're a real folklorist or a folklorist manque, as I am, you you have a, more of an idea of how far back those stories go and what may have influenced them and, and how do how do the English what are the English fairy tale fairies like and what mm-hmm. were their societies and what were their communities um, and you know the the the, uh, the the fairies in Scotland are pretty different from the fairies down in in, uh, they're, they're closer to the Yorkshire fairies than they are down yeah. to the southern fairies. So um, it's those things that I find most fascinating. Um, and and uh, but a lot of people go back to somebody else's fairies that have been written in the last twenty years or so, fifty years or so. Right. Speaking I'm of, one, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I'm just one for research in, in, fairy, in fairy tales. <laughs> Do you read contemporary writers? I mean, you've, uh, you're obviously connected with it. You, you, you've got a wonderful community there, which you invited me to dinner one night. And it was great. Uh, in, in Massachusetts, you've got this whole kind of group of writers from very, very literary, experimental writers to like hard SF writers. Who do you like to read these days? Um, I read Holly Black. I read John Crowley. I read Peter Beagle. Peter Beagle has um, recently had, I loved a little, it was more like a novella. Um, and it was about an elderly farmer in Calabria who is also a poet, though nobody really knows his poems. And he goes out. Right. It's called in Calabria. Calabria. And it's, and, and one day he goes out and there's a unicorn in his field. Uh-huh. And it, it's not as much about the unicorn as it is about the man, mm-hmm. and it's about his his he he had been suffering sort of a loss of his poetry, 
and 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 a loss of his manhood and a loss of his feeling that that there was anything he could do in life and by protecting this creature um he got all of that back Mm. and it it was for an older poet as i am to read that book i just connected so much with it thought it was beautiful it, it, it's a beautifully written novella, and it is a, no, a novella, uh, again, from Tachyon, uh, about aging uh, and about, you know, it's not really about the unicorn. You're right. Uh, unicorn, uh, unicorn is symbolic, but it's not about the unicorn itself. It's about the old right. man. His return to life. Yeah. It's very much of a piece with Peter's uh, most recent novel, Summerlong, as well, I think. Which deals with very similar kind of issues, and it's quite a lovely book in its own way. Uh, I read a lot of Neil Gaiman. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. I read Neil Gaiman. Um, I read uh, Joe Walton. Um, I recently read. The name is is leaving me, but it won the um, it won the Nebula this year. Novel by Charlie. Uh, Charlie Jane Anders. All the Birds in the Sky. Yes, which I love. I love. Um, I also read a lot of um, mysteries, and I read a lot of historical novels. And I love biographies. And when I am about to go to bed, or when I am in Scotland and about to sit down (laughs) to a lunch or breakfast by myself, I read a lot of poetry. Contemporary poetry or historical, classical, Victorian, whatever? I don't like Victorian poetry for the most part. Um, contemporary or slightly a little um, – I, I reread some Dylan Thomas. I, I, I loved Yeats, which I will turn to all the time. But I was reading a lot of um, – oh, God, he was married to Sylvia Plath. Oh, Ted Hughes. Ted Hughes. I went on a big Ted Hughes um, jag in in uh, Scotland. Um, you don't like Swinburne? I always thought he was a much better poet than she was. Well, okay, that's okay. You're you're going to get mail. You're going to get email about that. I think if she had not killed herself, she would have been not seen as a as a big poet. I um, think she was a feminist icon, but I don't think she's a great poet. I this is a separate discussion, but I I would be inclined to agree with you to the extent that Anne Sexton did the sort of things that Sylvia Plath could have done. Yes, I thought Anne Sexton's stuff is brilliant. Well, and, and transformations, her collection of fairy tale oh, poems, yes. sort of moves yep. into your territory. Absolutely, and I think she was influential in some of what I do. Oh, great! That's good to hear. Um, but if, 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 okay, so the next time we see each other, I'm going to tell you about Swinburne and why you should like him. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. <laughs> I know. Uh, well, look, we're probably getting to we're probably yeah, we getting towards the end of our hour, and we should probably wind up. Um, before we finish, I just wanted to sort of make sure that everybody knew who's listening that 
obviously the Emerald Circus, your, your most recent short story collection, is out in stores from, from Tachyon, and Fractured Fairy Tales, I guess, will come out in maybe about 12 months. And that Mapping, ma- mapping the Bones, yeah. your next major new I novel. Also, <laughs> yeah. I also want to mention two other books that might be of interest Please. to your... Yes, yeah. Again, Mapping the Bones, which is a Holocaust novel hung on the the armature of... Um, of uh, Hansel and Gretel, that's out in March. Yep. And later on, um, Finding Baba Yaga, which is a first novel coming out from Tor.com. Exactly. Well, until they come out, thank you very, very much for making the time to talk to us today. It's uh, enormously appreciated. We're very grateful. Thank you. And I'll tell you, the person who's going to be happiest is my daughter. She's going to find out that I could actually do the Skype on my own. <laughs> That's a big, a big step for me. Well, that's all. Other writers in your age group have been totally unable to master. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and some younger ones. Let me tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, okay. Okay. Well, Gary, until next week, I shall talk to you again. And until then, this has been the Good Street Podcast.